Some of you have been in churches that practice church discipline wrongly. And right now, you might even be suspicious, thinking, what's this all about? Church discipline is something that is not popular today, and it's often not practiced. But that has not always been the case. So while the discipline of the church has never been a uh, subject the church is just lighthearted about and, and celebratory about, it has been a church that was crucial. So the Bible acknowledges that discipline is painful. The book of Hebrews says all discipline feels painful in the moment, but just because it's painful doesn't mean that it's not a part of what the church is called to do. In fact, way back in 1561, the Belgic Confession of the Reformed Churches included the practice of church discipline as one of three marks of a church. So you're looking at, okay, what does a church do? The three things a church does, discipline was one of them. This is what it says. The true church can be recognized if it has the following marks. The church engages in the pure preaching of the gospel it makes use of the pure administration of the sacraments as Christ instituted them. That's baptism, the Lord's Supper. It practices church discipline for correcting faults. In short, it, the true church, governs itself according to the pure word of God, rejecting all things contrary to it and holding Jesus Christ as the only head. Now that's a confession. So, so that's man's understanding, putting together the Bible, right? At the end of the day, as we've been seeing, we are under the authority of the Word, but confessions like this help us to see that while our time, this may not be a popular thing or a practiced thing, it hasn't always been the case. For centuries, Christians have gone before us, and they would say, look, discipline is one of the ways the church governs itself, Preaching proclaims the gospel. The sacraments display the gospel, and church discipline protects the gospel. But what is church discipline? How should it look, and what's the purpose? Right? You, so far, we haven't touched on that, but that's what we're going to be looking at in the rest of the sermon today. Church discipline can be done in a wrong way. And when church discipline is done in a wrong way, it can be incredibly abusive and scarring. God gives, so John talked about authority last week, God gives authority to be used as a blessing. And when the church uses its authority to beat people with, to abuse people with, to domineer people with, God hates that. It is not wrong to discipline your children it is wrong to abuse your children. And we need to know where the line is so that we practice it in a way that truly is life-giving, soul-saving, and not destructive. So we're going to be looking at a few primary texts in the New Testament that help us understand the role of discipline in the life of the church. And through those texts, we're going to see three aspects of church discipline. First, we're going to see the types of church discipline then we're going to see the process of church discipline, and then we're going to wrap up with the grace of church discipline. So first, let's look at the types of church discipline. 
I mentioned this in a previous sermon in this sermon series, but there's actually two types of discipline that often are talked about in this regard. There's formative discipline and there's corrective discipline. Formative discipline is like lifting weights to build muscle. Corrective discipline is like cutting out fats or cutting out carbs, if that's what you're supposed to do these days. I don't know how those things go. But cutting out bad foods in order to keep your body healthier. We're going to look at each one of these, formative and corrective, one at a time. So formative discipline happens all the time in the life of the church. It happens all the time in the life of the church. As believers walk alongside each other, as believers speak the truth in love to each other, as believers care for one another, exhort one another, encourage one another, they are instilling discipline in the life of the church. This is the sort of discipline that Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9. I had to get my reference there. So 1 Corinthians 9, when he talks about disciplining his body, he's not talking about beating up his body because his body has done bad things. He's talking about keeping his body in shape instilling the right practices to be able to endure. He says this, Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is keeping his body focused. He is pursuing Christ with his body. And he knows sin has a gravitational pull to it. So we don't remain neutral with sin right? We, we, if we're sitting in our place waiting for things to happen, guess what? You're already drifting because we have this thing called indwelling sin, this old man, and it's being pulled away from God. Now, Christians have a new nature, and that's the nature that we need to push on with that Paul is doing. So Paul's going to live in a self-controlled way. He's going to discipline himself and build up spiritual muscles so that he can persevere to the end. That's formative discipline. I think another text that we see formative discipline being used is Hebrews 12. In Hebrews 12, this is probably one of the more famous texts on discipline in the Bible. I actually think it's about formative discipline. In verse 4, the author of Hebrews is talking about the, the way that believers have not yet resisted to the point of shedding their own blood. They're struggling with sin, and they're continuing to struggle with sin. And he says this, It is for discipline that you have to endure. What are you enduring? You're enduring the battle, the remaining indwelling sin that's in your heart. It's a fight day in and day out. Why is that the case? For discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there in whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we 
not much more, be subject to the Father of spirits and live. For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The struggle that believers have with indwelling sin still in their hearts, resisting against it day in and day out, is an example of God treating them like children. He is instilling discipline into them. Parents can be strict with their children. Some of you kids in the room are like, amen, my parents are strict with me. Parents can be strict. They, They force their kids to do mean and cruel things like homework and picking up their room and setting the table, right? They're doing things that kids are thinking, it's too hard. I don't like this. I don't want to do this anymore. You do it faster anyway, Dad. Why don't you just do it? They're they're cruelly, oppressively, parents are putting their kids through discipline to train them, to train them to be fully functioning competent adults who know how to set the table and make their beds and brush their teeth and clean up their rooms. The discomfort is temporary that parents put their kids through, and it's for the sake of training them. Parents are practicing formative discipline with their children, and this is what God does with us. He allows in his sovereignty for his children to struggle on against indwelling sin. He could take it away like that. God can do that. He allows for his children to struggle on through indwelling sin in order to train us to share in his holiness. He forms through discipline, and he expects his church to do the same. Formative discipline, when the church practices it, it, it instills habits, practices in the life of the church that are meant to build maturity. So I was helped this, this past week while thinking about this by a guy named Jamie Dunlop. And he writes this. He says, formative discipline is simply the process of bringing people to maturity in Christ through positive instruction and teaching, through formation. When the word is preached and we are convicted, or when Christians encourage each other, that is formative discipline. Through speaking the truth in love, through confessing sin, accountability, encouragement, exhortation, those practices form the church into maturity. We are formed through discipline. So that's the first type of church discipline. But let's be honest, when most of us talk about church discipline, we're talking about the second type of church discipline, corrective discipline. Recognizing the nature of formative discipline keeps us from viewing discipline merely as a negative thing. But the Belgic Confession and the way that the Bible, the New Testament, often talks about it is corrective. Corrective discipline is when a church engages in rebuke and correction, when its members are living in sin. So corrective discipline is when a church engages in rebuke and correction when its members are living in sin. And when that sin is persistent, when it's ongoing, when it's unrepented of, 
Corrective discipline happens in the form of, the fancy word is excommunication or removal from membership. In the next section, we're going to look at how this should happen according to the Bible. But what we're going to do here is we're going to look at 1 Corinthians 5, because John told me, to, I ha- told me I had to last week. And we're going to spend the bulk of the time just walking through that text. And in 1 Corinthians 5, we see probably more than anywhere else a holistic picture of what is happening in corrective discipline. So, verse 1. The context of this is the Corinthian church is very messed up. There's a lot of sin. There's a lot of power struggles going on. And Paul has heard of a situation that's well known. And he writes in and teaches them, exhorts them, challenges them about church discipline. He says, it's actually reported that there is a kind of sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. So the Corinthian church has been tolerating, probably under the guise of pride and saying, oh, we, we're, we're big enough as a church to handle this sort of thing and to allow for this sort of thing, boasting in how tolerant we are. They have been tolerating serious, public, unrepentant sin. A man who has a member of the church is having an affair with his stepmother. And what Paul calls them to do is to remove him Remove him from membership. Doesn't use the word membership, but among you. What does it mean to be removed among you? It means you're not recognized as a Christian. Paul goes on, For though I am absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. So Paul calls the church to come together, to assemble together. Paul's going to be spiritually present with them, but they're assembling together in the name of the Lord Jesus to exercise the keys of the kingdom Binding and loosing that Pastor John spoke about last week. Paul doesn't call the pastors to discipline this man. Some of you I've heard from talking to some of you, I've heard stories about home churches that someone does something public and the pastor by himself unilaterally just brings him up and shames him and then kicks them out. Pastors are not the ones who have the authority to do that. The church itself is called to assemble and to do this as a church in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this removal, Paul says, is, verse 5, delivering this man to Satan. What that is, that's, that's putting him outside the care and the protection of the church, removing the seal of affirmation that we think you're a believer and acknowledging you're not. And in not being so, you are not covered by the blood of Christ. You're living in a way that is unrepentant, that is heinous, that is sinful. 
and we are going to treat you and recognize that you are a member of the kingdom of darkness, from a human perspective at least. But this is ultimately for his good. Do you see that? You're supposed to do this so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. This is why church discipline is called corrective and not simply punitive. What you're not doing is you're not getting someone back when you're disciplining them. What you're doing is you are loving them. You're trying to do this so that they come to grips with the severity of their sin and that they repent so that their soul is saved in the day of the Lord, turning to Christ. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here we see why church discipline is so important. Tolerated sin spreads. Paul goes back and he picks up an illustration from the Passover when Israel had to leave Egypt and they didn't bake their bread with leaven, they baked unleavened breads. The church, Paul says, is called to be a holy and pure community. But a little bit of sin can spread and permeate it. And if it's overlooked and if it's tolerated, it can ruin the whole thing. Over the weekend, uh, I tried my hand at bread baking. So I, I like to cook. I uh, like to eat bread. Therefore, I tried to combine those two things and make bread that tasted good. I didn't add enough salt, so it didn't taste very good. But I tried my hand at bread baking, and I, I did a, a strange technique. And what I did is I created something that's called a pre-ferment, or a poolish is the fun word for it. What you do is you basically you take this really like wet and sticky dough that doesn't have any yeast to it, and then you take just a pinch, just a teeny tiny little bit of yeast, and you drop it in there. And then you mix it all in, you cover it up, and you leave it on the countertop for about 4 to 16 hours. So left it for a long time, right? But it was just a teeny tiny little bit of yeast. I mean, you wouldn't even see it if I was holding it in my hand drop it in there. After that time, I come back into the kitchen, and this dough that was only about that high has risen up about four times as much. That teeny amount of yeast, given enough time and given enough heat, allowed for it to expand and create these huge pockets of air that, in theory, should add depth of flavor and texture to the bread. With bread, that's a good thing. With sin, that's not. You take a little bit of sin and you sprinkle it in and you, you try and just not deal with it. You just let it do its thing. It might be awkward to have a conversation with that person or they might think that we're being rude or that we're being judgmental and so we don't, wanna, we don't actually talk to them about it. But you get enough time What's going to happen is that sin is going to permeate. It's going to spread. It's going to leaven the whole lump, as Paul says. And what you'll find is that the entire taste and texture of the church, 
what the church is supposed to look like, smell like, taste like, will be ruined. It'll be a church that looks exactly like the world, that smells like the world, that tastes like the world. Paul says you're tolerating something that you shouldn't tolerate. Remove the sin from your midst so you can be pure as you ought to be. He wraps up the chapter with these words. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. This is the previous letter that he had. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother, that is, who calls themselves a Christian, if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. It's talking about the Lord's Supper. Don't even allow this person to partake like they're a Christian. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? It is not those, is it not those inside the church who you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here we see the purpose of church discipline and how it protects the purity and the witness of the church. Christians do not practice corrective discipline because we are mean. We don't, we don't practice it because we have this holier-than-thou attitude. Like, I wouldn't ever struggle with that. We practice it because we want to be holy as a church. We're not trying to avoid sinners. Paul assumes that we will be engaged with sinners in our daily interactions. He says, I didn't say outside the church. I am assuming that you are in the world and that you are engaging in the world. No, I'm talking about inside the church. In this people, we are a holy people, purchased by the blood of Christ, set free from the power and the penalty of our sin, and therefore called to be holy as God is holy. Christians don't run away from unrepentant sinners, but we do call them what they are, and that is non-Christians. An unrepentant Christian doesn't exist. In verse 13, we see the function of church discipline. And this is really important for us to understand the authority of the church that John was talking about. Paul quotes an Old Testament passage, many Old Testament passages throughout the book of Deuteronomy that call the people of Israel to purge the evil person from among you. He quotes that passage and applies it to what they're doing, removing this person from membership. Well, in the Old Testament, when Israel was doing that, Anytime that shows up, it's always talking about the death penalty. Purge the evil person by among you by killing them, by stoning them. The New Covenant Church does not have that authority. We do not execute people for sin in our church. We don't have the authority to fine people, to be like, up, oh, I saw you committing sin. You need to make sure you put a little bit more in the offering box on your way out. We don't have that authority. We don't have the authority to force people to do community service. The New Covenant Church doesn't have some kind of Sharia law that's put in place to control everything. We don't have the authority to kill people 
And churches that attempt to do that, churches that apply commands given to the state, to themselves, are overstepping their boundaries. And they're actually missing out on the power of the authority that they do have. The church exercises spiritual authority. The way that we cast judgment upon somebody is through spiritual pronunciation. That this person is spiritually dead. That they are dead in their sins and trespasses. We don't make them dead. We recognize them as dead because of the way that they are living. When we exercise corrective church discipline, we are giving someone over to the spiritual death that their sin deserves. Because we are judging that they have not come to a truly saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. If they had, they wouldn't be holding on to their sin, delighting in it, enjoying in it, refusing to let it go. Okay, let's summarize. That was the longest point, by the way. The next two are not as long. Formative church discipline is the way that a church protects itself from sin through teaching, exhortation, accountability, and encouragement. Corrective church discipline is the way the church protects itself from sin through rebuke and, if necessary, removal from church witness. It's a spiritual judgment that ensures the church is displaying the truth of the gospel. Let's look at how the church does this, the process for church discipline, specifically for corrective church discipline. And to see this, we're going to look at Matthew 18, which we already looked at briefly last week. There's a lot of overlap in these sermons, as you can tell, because we're looking at the texts that talk about what the church is supposed to do. Like Matthew 16, Matthew 18 is talking about the authority the church has to exercise the keys of the kingdom to bind and to loose. Pastor John showed us that. And like Paul does in 1 Corinthians 5, Jesus is talking about how the church protects its witness. And it happens through the process of pursuing repentance. It's not a one-time thing. So it's not, oh, John sinned against me. Get out of here. There's a process to it. There's steps to it. And Jesus describes what this should look like. So let's work through it quickly. Verse 15, Jesus says, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So church discipline is a four-step process. And here we see the first step. When sinned against, go and tell your brother his fault. When our brothers and sisters sin against us, which, let's be honest, in the church happens. Hopefully it doesn't happen all the time, but it does happen. We are fallen human beings, and we sin against one another. We are called by Jesus to go and make that known to our brothers and sisters. Often we do the exact opposite. So if our brothers and sisters sin against us, we go and tell someone else that they sinned against us. But we never actually talk to them But Jesus says we're supposed to go to them directly, and we're called to keep it small and relatively private. There's a reason for this. Through telling their sin to them, you will either learn, A, that it wasn't actually sin. So this happens. So why didn't you respond to my WhatsApp? You must be ignoring me. I saw the two checks. I saw the blue marks. Why didn't you respond to me? You realize, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I meant to. 
Oh, okay, that wasn't sin at all. Cleared up. You'll either learn that, or you'll learn, you'll help your brother to see that it was sin, and they will respond with repentance. I am so sorry. I didn't even know that I was coming across that way. I, 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 I'm sorry about that. Will you please forgive me? Or three, you'll expose that your brother is actually hardened in their sin. That it is clearly sin, but they're not turning away from it. And if that's the case, you move to the next step. Huh. I forgot I didn't have additional slides. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So if he doesn't listen to you, bring along one or two others. And by doing this, you're keeping it from being a his word against mine. It allows for others to hear what happened and to bring their wisdom to bear on the situation. Again, maybe you just think, man, John is so hardened in his sin, he didn't even recognize that he was sinning against me. And then you bring in Stephen, and Stephen stands there with you and is like, Luke, that's not sin. You're, 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 you're being petty. You're the one who's actually sinning against John. Right, so that, that could happen by bringing in another witness. You're bringing in a counselor to be able to help you. And often, by God's grace, bringing in other counselors does help resolve. But sometimes it doesn't. And if it doesn't, then you move on to step three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. This is where the whole church is notified that this person is in grave sin. We've had two or three witnesses confirm this, and now they have not listened, so we're notifying the church. And what you're doing is you are mobilizing the church to pursue the repentance of this person, seeking their eternal good. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The person has still refused to listen to the pleas of the church, then you're to treat him as a Gentile and a tax collector. That is, treat him as an unbeliever. Don't act like they're a Christian. In church membership, what we're doing when we welcome someone into church membership is we are affirming that this person is following Jesus. In church discipline, we are denying that this person is following Jesus. And therefore, we're not going to regard this person as a Christian. We're not going to eat with them. We're not going to enjoy the Lord's Supper with them. When our conversations are with them, our conversations are about their repentance and about the gospel. And note that this is the way that a person engages with unrepentant sin. It, it doesn't matter how much head knowledge a person has. So someone can go through this whole process and ace a theological exam. But they are holding on to their sin. Spiritual maturity is not knowing all the right answers. Now, knowledge is important. But spiritual maturity is about trusting God with every aspect of your life, including your battle with sin. So that's the process of church discipline. I want to wrap up by looking at the final aspect of church discipline, and that is the grace of church discipline. Church discipline is a grace for many people, we're going to look at three. For the individual who's under discipline, this is a good thing. It may not feel like it, but it is. The gospel teaches that Christ died not just to deliver us from the 
penalty of our sin, but also from the power of our sin. That redeemed people are going to live holy lives. He makes men and women new creations in Christ. Behold, the old has passed, new things have come. Old lusts, old longings, they are nailed to the cross of Christ. It is possible, however, to be self-deceived. To think that we are a Christian with our heads because my parents were Christian, my culture is Christian, my last name is Christian. When we actually are not because we love sin in our heart. We're not willing to give it up. And this is why we need the church to help us see this. The purpose of church discipline, as we already saw, is to save souls from death. It's to rescue people from the penalty of their sin. It may be a painful process. And like the Corinthian church, it would be far easier for us to just ignore it and to walk away and to save face with those who are around us, not bring dishonor or shame upon anybody. But that's a sort of tolerance that will lead to hell. And that awkwardness of confronting sin is infinitely less painful than the reality of eternal suffering. When Jesus says, treat people like Gentiles and tax collectors, he doesn't mean shame them, but he does mean evangelize them. He means preach the gospel to them. He means share with them the good news of Jesus Christ. The Pharisees needed to know their need for a Savior before they could turn and repent. And those who are living in unrepentant sin need to know the gravity of their sin so that they can turn to Christ. Church discipline helps them to see that by God's grace so they will repent and experience the joy of true forgiveness. But it's not just grace for the individual under discipline, it's also grace for the faithful Christians, for those who are not living in sin. Faithful Christians, when they see church discipline take place, were warned. Warned that this is the consequence of sin. Lust creeps into your life little by little, greed little by little. And when we see discipline practice, we are sobered and warned. This is a way that corrective church discipline can actually be formative church discipline for those who are faithful. And another thing, faithful Christians are able to see their experience grace when they see God working through the whole process. When they see that God is working, that God is pursuing this person, and that when you confront sin, you get a chance to experience that God is better than what this person thinks about us. So often, fear of man keeps us from ever pressing into our brothers' and sisters' lives. What will they think about me? But when we press in in faith, and we see that even if that person doesn't like it, we experience the pleasure of God because we are trusting Him, we see that's enough, and that is sufficient. Seeing God show up encourages us to keep challenging, keep trusting him with other challenges. And then finally, church discipline is a grace for the watching world. A pure church is an attractive church. The world does not need more of the world. The world does not need to come to church to see big pastors who have lots of money and lots of power and lots of wealth. The world does not need to come and see all of the sinful pleasures 
that they see already outside the church. The world needs to come to the church to see the beauty of holiness and to see the character of God on display as faithful Christians, not perfectly, but genuinely seek to pursue the glory of God in their interactions with each other. Through church discipline, we protect the witness of the church, and therefore we have something different to hold out and to say, are you dissatisfied with your sin? Do you want to taste and see something that is good? Come to Christ. He changes you. He makes you new. He will satisfy you with his his steadfast love. Jesus really does demand that we love him with everything that we are. And through the practice of church discipline, we show that he's worth it. Church discipline is not a light thing, but it is a gracious thing. It's not something we're going to talk about all the time. We shouldn't if we're being proportionate to scriptures. But it is something that we want to be able to be engaged in so that we can see our brothers and sisters built up into maturity in Christ and the church presented to Christ holy, pure, and blameless before him in love. May Redeemer Online be the sort of church that loves the beauty of Jesus and is willing to do hard things to be able to see Christ glorified in our midst.